This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Podcast on How to Be Wrong, hosted by John Cage and myself, John Trapagan. Uh, the other John is not available today, so I will be going solo on this particular journey into the nature and experience of intellectual humility and the value of screwing up, uh, something I'm pretty good at. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sherry Wells Jensen, a professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University and an expert in xenolinguistics, or the study of how alien languages might work. She also uh, has recently had the distinction of flying on the vomit comet, no doubt an uplifting experience. Um, Sherry, thank you for joining us today. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Great. Let's begin with a little info on our guest. Um, Sherry, could you tell our listeners a a bit about your background, uh, the intellectual path you've taken, and Um, which I think certainly has had some interesting turns. And I'd also be pretty interested in learning um, more about your recent encounter with Zero G and how that came about and why you wound up doing that. Okay, now how many hours do we have here? Yeah, really? (laughs) As long as you want. (laughs) I mean, you really don't go from being a linguist to adventuring on the Vomit Comet without taking some hairpin turns along the way. You just really, and and also you just got to be wrong a lot, I think, because if I were right, in the first place, then I never would have been on the vomit comet at all. Uh, on which I did not vomit, by the way. And actually, no one on the trip with us threw up at all. So we win. We won that little game, at least. That's good. So how uh, how is it that being wrong got you to the vomit comet? Okay, so it's complicated. So my original intent was to study astronomy and physics. That was my thing. That was my passion. That was what I really desperately wanted to do um, as kind of a high schooler. Um, And I was very subtly and probably with good intent sidetracked away from the hard sciences into the social sciences um, 
by um, and this is a whole nother this is a whole nother interesting scenario of how people are wrong and how agreeing with people who are already wrong can sort of compound the wrongness that two wrongs makes a right thing I don't know not so much I don't think it just makes the, <laughs> makes the curves bigger um, and so I was sidetracked into the into the social sciences which we can talk about more because that is a that is a whole scenario of how people can be wrong and not doing what they intended to do. Um, uh, but when I first got my, uh, so I ended up in linguistics because in the Peace Corps, I met these incredibly brilliant women who were our language teachers. So I was in Ecuador and my whole job, the first three months I was there was to learn Spanish. That was my whole job. I had no other responsibilities, you know, at all. I would just get up in the morning, I'd go down to the to the Peace Corps compound and I would just learn Spanish all day. And I, I was never so happy. It was so much fun. Oh my God, it was so much fun. And the women who did the teaching were brilliant. They just, I felt like they were mind readers. I would have something I wanted to say and I would, in my completely terrible, desperate Spanish, I would say the words I knew and kind of wave my hands around and make desperate faces. And then they would supply me not only with the vocabulary I needed, but with the grammar I needed to make my point. And I thought, Ooh, I want to do this. I must do this. If I'm not going to be an astronomer, I have to do this thing. I want to be an uh, an English teacher. English is a second language teacher. Got to grad school after the Peace Corps, um, and discovered linguistics, which is as close, which is science and language, right? So I thought, ooh, cool, science, language. I'm happy. Um, my very first semester in my job at Bowling Green, uh, I was in my office, and the chair came in and said, "So, what would you like to teach this summer?" And I said, "Well." I would like to teach a class in xenolinguistics, you know, what an alien language would be like. And I was waiting for him to go, right, okay, that was funny. Now, what, were you, what, are, you, what are you really going to do? Uh, come on. But instead of that, he said, okay. <laughs> I know, I know, what a gem of a, of a marvelous human being. Um, and so... Uh, and so I spent my first year desperately planning this class and I taught it and it was really fun. Uh, fast forward about uh, 14 years, <laughs> um, during which I had kind of just forgotten that I wanted to be an astronomer. I put that out of my head. And I get a call from Doug Vakic uh, of Medi International who said, SETI is doing a thing on, we're doing a colloquium on languages in outer space. Do you want to come? And I I about had a heart attack uh, to go to SETI to to talk with people who knew Carl Sagan. I, I, I'm still a little breathless thinking about it because Carl Sagan was absolutely my hero. Um, and so the, and so that's that's how the connection got made. Um, you know, uh, space apparently needs linguists. Um, and so I started I started down this path of thinking about using the knowledge that I had gained from linguistics to apply to uh, the structure of alien languages. Another side path on how we can be wrong, we can come back to later, uh, and which started me down the path of disability access to outer space since I'm blind. Uh, one of the things I did was read, 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 read all the study literature I could find so I wouldn't look stupid in front of people who knew Carl Sagan. Um and I and I encountered the repeated claim that any extraterrestrial civilization advanced enough to have technology would 
automatically have some analog of human visual perception. And, and so all my, all my hackles raised, rose raised, all my, I'm a linguist, I should know these things. All my hackles went up and I thought, damn it, that's not, that's, I mean, I guess it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, since visual perception arguably evolved separately on earth. Uh, how I don't pick your number. Um, I've read all kinds of numbers and how many times. Uh, so yeah, maybe it's common and I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm convinced that it's useful, um, but necessary. I don't think so. Uh, so I started, that's what started me into thinking about alternative sensory perceptions, which started me into how uh, blind and disabled other humans with other disabilities could go into space, which led me <clears throat> to do all kinds of cool conferences with that topic, um, which led me to meet Anna Volker, who is the chairperson for Sci Access, who do, they do accessibility to this in the STEM fields uh, for people with disabilities. And then, boom, all of a sudden there was this opportunity to be uh, in um, as a, if, uh, in the leadership of Mission Astro Access, uh, which led me to uh, their big project, which was one of the barriers to disabled people being in space. I mean, there's barriers, right? There's the, oh my God, no barrier. It's like, no, we're not having disabled, disabled people in space. What are you, crazy? There's that barrier. There's the, we don't send disable people who are vulnerable to do dangerous things barrier. But I think the real the real actual barrier that I think all sensible people can agree on is a thing that we need to think about is we just don't know how to do that. We don't know we don't know what you need as a disabled person in a microgravity environment. How, for example, do you find your way around if there is no down <laughs> and there is no up as I now have very personal uh, and very visceral memories of when there is no up and there is no down, left and right are really hard to pin down as our front and back. So you can be floating. Like, I have no idea where anything is. I'm lucky to find my own feet in that environment because, boy, it's uh, profoundly disorienting. So, yeah, so that's how I ended up on the Vomit Comet, uh, which uh, was amazing. Um, I am, I'm actually sort of afraid to fly and I don't like roller coasters. So my participation in this thing, I thought was a really bad idea, but I had to go because when someone says, Hey, do you want to do zero gravity? I mean, I think the only answer to that is how soon and how do I get there? And right. <laughs> let's go. Yeah. I, you, you, you really kind of cut to a couple of really key points about um, the, that we're trying to explore in this, this particular podcast. And, and one that you raise, I think is really important is the, um, you know, you make the point that, well, if, if, you know, some alien creature somewhere is going to develop and, you know, some sort of intelligence, they're going to be sighted, but that's an assumption. That's an assumption based right. upon the way we see the world, the way we encounter the world, um, or at least the way we think things encounter the world everywhere. Um, but it's also, it's a kind of a, it, there's a lack of sort of intellectual humility in making that assumption because it, it ignores the possibilities of having different ways of encountering the world um, and, you know, assumes that, okay, the way I see the world sitting here right now is the way everybody sees the world. That's not the way it is. Um, and the other thing I think that's interesting is that your your own experience on the Vomit Comet, it sounds like to some way, in some ways, it, it sort of disrupted your own sense of the way the world is 
because all of a sudden when you don't have up, down, and forward and back, you've got to think about things in a very different way. Would, would that be reasonable? Yeah. Um, and then also it's, it's hellaciously loud aboard the vomit comet. I should stop. Yeah, because we'll see, it's a, it's a modified 727 doing dives. Um, and so one of the things that they do to make that all work out uh, is they take a lot of the soundproofing off. So you hear the engine noise and you hear the, well, it, it doesn't sound like anything. It just sounds like, it sounds like every scary noise you've ever heard. Um, if you're me. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so, so, so not only are we inverted, which I don't think would have been as bad. That would have been a really interesting puzzle, but being inverted, flipped around upside down where there is no upside down even, and also um, unable to use what, what I depend on, which is auditory cues, um, was really quite something. But yeah, you're exactly right. The, the thing that, uh, that idea of questioning your assumptions, I mean, I think there's two pieces of that. One is um, every time we think about aliens, I mean, I feel like a broken record, but the only thing I keep saying is, well, how do you know that? Well, why would you assume that? Well, how can we unthink that? Because everything we think uh, and everything we unconsciously assume could be flat wrong. And making that assumption going into an encounter, even if it's just an encounter with a radio signal, could lead us to misinterpret in dramatically profound ways. Um, some of which could be dangerous, but some of which could just lead to us not understanding what the heck's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a there is a, a tendency, I think very common tendency to just sort of assume that all living things basically encounter the world the same way. But, you know, I, I often I've used this in my classes often that that, you know, dogs who are our best friends and we're close to, and I love dogs and they're great. Um, and I certainly feel like I can interact well with my dogs and they understand me. On the other hand, their ability to process sense is so far beyond my ability to process sense that it makes me realize that somehow they're constructing in their minds a different world from the one that I'm constructing in, mm -hmm. constructing in my head. It overlaps, right. but it's different. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. the other, I think that's the other piece of that is that this, this idea that we're always going to be wrong about the aliens until we're not, and then right. we'll discover, you know, that we were wrong about some other things is that we're just wrong about each other so much of the time. Uh, yes. A lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot. And, and it, it, it's, you know, I, you know, because I study Japan, I've, I've encountered this often because the Japanese language works so differently from the way English works. And it, it strikes me at times, you know, wow, you know, people who grow up learning that language, they, they put together the world differently from the way I do having grown up learning English, you know, just something as simple as um, they don't really use plural and singular in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, and then you start thinking, well, why do we have to stick an S on the end of a word to differentiate between one and more than one? If I say one car, two car, three car, you understand what I mean. So it, it's it's a very interesting problem, I think, that, that we assume that these things are natural um, without really recognizing how different they can be for other people. 
Right. So there's this little extra piece of work that you have to do if your language doesn't express plurals. There's this little extra piece of cognitive stuff going on in your head. Mm -hmm. It's not that like you don't know what three things are, but when someone's speaking to you, there's a little extra piece of redundancy in the information that we're giving as a language we get with the S's on the ends of things or most things. Um, I mean, because when someone says three fish, we don't go, ooh, I don't know. Is that one fish? I know. How many fish could that be? It's, you know, we don't do that. But, but, um, but uh, it is a little extra piece of unconscious, what do you want to go unconscious labor, unconscious thought, or, or uh, maybe if you have plurals, a little extra thing that you have to filter out. You know, I don't know how much different it makes in behavior, but there's, there's a little tiny chunk there's a little tiny chunk of extra work you have to do, right? Yes. If you don't have those yeah. plurals. Yeah. Or if, as in the case of Japanese, they actually just count differently. Instead of worrying about things like plurals, they use counters that identify the shape, the purpose, the size of an object. So mm -hmm. you count dogs differently from the way you count cows. There's a different, you know, there's a yeah. different counter you stick on the end. And so the information related to what matters when you count is different for Japanese and, and for English speakers, which is intriguing to me. Um, so oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah and, and the fact that it varies across languages. So languages with counters mm -hmm. don't have the same counters. It's not like <laughs> it's not like there is a counter system right. uh, that you either have or you don't have. It's that languages that have them have whatever set they have and there are some i mean one of the things that linguists do is like we like to dig under that and see what the cognition that humans have in common might be such that all these different languages make sense and any human being can learn them uh so like so so there's that underlying uniformity that we're looking for uh but also we look at uh the diversity of languages which also tells us something about the underlying cognitive ability of human beings. Like what, what, what kind of languages can we learn, which gives us an idea of our language capacity, which could be completely different um, if you're talking about aliens, right? How, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Well, and, and how much of our language is also dependent upon, you know, the particular ways that we sense the world. And if you have some kind of different sensory apparatus, would, would people on another world, would they, construct the language in a way that we really can't make sense out of. That's something that's always intrigued me. Yeah. You know, I've, and I've thought about that a lot. So if you had a language that was made, so, okay. So I, just, I, 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 I'm obligated to say out loud that blind people learn language like sighted people and there isn't a difference and people should just get over that. Okay. Um, including weird stuff, like uh, even weird stuff that is wrong. Like when, cited people talk about colors even if you haven't seen color you still learn that vocabulary and you'll still say things like red hot and you'll understand that red hot is the hottest even though a blue flame is actually hotter than a red flame that's something that like our languages get wrong but blind people get it wrong in the same way okay so the kid that's out of the way um uh um but so so if if i were if I were in a race of all blind people, I might construct my language in ways that allow me to give better information than earth languages do because earth languages are built around the idea that people are looking at things. So you know that, you know that, <laughs> you know that completely impossible uh, to communicate about situation where you're trying to like move a couch and you end up saying things like, you know, that way, like go up like your end. I mean, no, that, 
it's just impossible, right? So if if I couldn't gesture at that, um, and I knew I couldn't gesture at that, but I really wanted to be good at moving couches and getting around in the world as as a blind alien, you know, I might have a better dyctic system, or I might have a system uh, that's more nuanced in talking about space, such that I could tell somebody exactly what to do. We could communicate more clearly. So, you know, and and those would seem like weird, redundant things to us uh, who speak all these earth languages, me included. I'd be like, "Ooh, what is that? Ooh, I do. Um, uh, but it would be it would be perfectly reasonable and natural in that circumstance. So when if we're looking at the structure of alien languages, I mean, I think we have to start with earth languages because that's what we've got. But we have to start one by one trying to think about what our assumptions are which is really hard to figure out what do you what are you unconsciously assuming like it's almost an impossible question to answer what are I your think, unconscious biases yeah really and if they're unconscious how can you know them yeah exactly. um, yeah but you know there is there is something to that because you, if you think about it you know our any language is in some way limited or constricted by whatever we have for our sensory apparatus. In other words, how we happen to deal with the world is going to shape the way that we put the language together. And so uh, our language, we think our language isn't that way, but it is that way, regardless of whether you can see or can't see or whatever, it doesn't matter. You can hear or can't hear. They're all restricted in some way by the, what we've got in terms of the way we can deal with the world. Right. All spoken languages are like that. Signed languages. Yeah. Signed languages are a whole different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, arguably, I mean, absolutely the same cognition is involved, but uh, the structure is really different. And interestingly, I am I am a pretty good language learner. I mean, it's the thing I do. I really like it. I speak a couple languages. No big deal. I think it's fun. But boy, am I a bad signer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I struggle. I can't remember things. I just, mm-hmm. I, I got, I'm, I'm a mess. They tell me I look like a very um, enthusiastic, large, friendly dog when I sign. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's all I got. I, I, I've been struck that people always talk about how difficult Japanese is. And I, I made the mistake earlier in life of trying to study German and found it far more difficult than Japanese. And I don't know why it's, it's easier for me to learn Japanese, but it, I just found it much easier. German made no sense to me at all. I couldn't figure out why you'd have so many ways to say the. But, <laughs> <laughs> Look, so, that's very important. Yeah. I knew a guy once whose whole career, his whole linguistic career was the. We called him the guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is a podcast where we're, we're interested in errors, mistakes, how things, you know, that we screw up have a way of challenging and determining our ideas and, and even maybe bruise an e- ego or two on the way. I wonder if you could give us, um, you know, an example of a couple of situations, maybe a professional and a personal one where you got it wrong and you realized it. And then how did this influence your thinking? How did this influence, you know, your, your dealing with the world in general, or maybe with your scholarship? Um, what could you tell us about that? I have so many, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, I wonder if do you ever get anyone on this podcast that goes, well, I had to struggle to find a place where I was wrong because I just <laughs> not so the, far. <laughs> the trouble is picking one. Yeah. Okay, so um, I don't think this is exactly what you want, but um, mm-hmm. but it was it, it it was a realization to me that changed a lot of things in my life. So um, so I was uh, 
maybe I should put a content warning on this. There's a little, there's a little tiny bit of violence in it, but everybody turns out okay. Um, so, so my first year of, after my first year of grad school, I was living in this little, this nice street in Buffalo, kind of long residential-ish street. It not, there was lots of traffic. It went pretty fast, but you know, not a lot of it. It was a pretty comfortable place to live. Um, and obviously, since I don't drive, I did a lot of walking, 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 walking. Um, and it was summertime, and I had this ritual that I would go down to the store at the end of the block, and I would buy myself an ungodly large diet Coke in some <laughs> some huge vat and some something stupid with sugar to eat. And I, I was walking back along the street, um, coming back to my house, maybe a quarter, half mile walk, I'm not sure. Um, and I'd always really assumed that if I ever, I, I, I'm, I travel a lot. I've traveled around the world walking. I, you know, it's fine with me. Uh, I've got pretty, I've got pretty good mobility skills, whatever. Crossed lots of busy streets, no problem. And I always had told everyone, uh, that you know they shouldn't worry about it and but i also had had it in the back of my head that if i ever got hit by a car that pretty they'd pretty much kill me because cars are big and they move really fast and uh they're uncompromisingly hard and made of metal right so it'd be it so i was walking down my street uh, and I thought maybe there was a car in a driveway ahead of me. And I, so I stopped and I listened and no, it really wasn't there. And if it was, there it was way up by the house. And I'm so cool. So I walk, I'm walking along and I cross the driveway and um, the car comes blasting out of the driveway, crashes into me. And I fly up into the air, zoom, way up in the air, showering Diet Coke all over me in a giant ice cold shower. And I'm flying up in there and I land on the ground and I put my hands up because I, for some reason, reason I thought uh, in my head I'll push the car away um, <laughs> and so I'm laying there on the ground screaming my head off waiting for the car to come and kill me right because I was on the ground with a broken leg waiting to die um, and the car didn't come and kill me she'd knocked me I'd, I'd she'd knocked me so far that she'd knocked me up into her front yard so I'm laying there with my broken leg in her front yard but the car did not come and kill me and I thought to myself holy everything. I am not dead. I was convinced that being hit by a car would kill me. And there I was alive laying in the middle of the yard and the car had not come to run me over. And I thought this was the happiest moment that I'd, I remember just laying on the ground laughing like a fiend, just thinking, oh my God, I was wrong about cars. They don't kill you. They just knock you into the air. Oh, and um, the the fun linguistic end of the story is the woman got out of the car and walks over, and I, she she obviously detected that she like hit somebody, and she looks down at me and she says, and I quote, "Oh my God, oh my God, I hit you. I'm so sorry. My name is Stacy. I'm your new neighbor. It's nice to meet you." <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which made me laugh more, and I'm sure she thought yeah. that I had just like that it was my head that had been broken and not my leg. Um, and, and so it was just, it was a whole new, I mean, there was just, it was a complicated summer because, you know, I was living by myself with a broken leg then for the rest of the summer. And there was a bunch of, there was a bunch of dashing around to hospitals and things. Um, but I think that the, the, how totally wrong I was, first off, first off, without, before that experience, I'd always assumed that the car would kill me, but I didn't know what it would feel like to get, get hit by a car. It was really a completely novel experience. I don't recommend it, by the way. Um, just like the, 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 the 
suddenness and the violence of the impact is visceral and something that I had no idea uh, about, right? Uh, but but after that, my sense of my sense of what it's like to walk everywhere changed because I thought, oh, I could now I understand what being hit by a car is like, but also it didn't kill me, and so my interpretation of what was possible and what was reasonable in walking around uh, everywhere change. And I feel like, I feel like I'm both more cautious now as a result of that, but also less afraid. Um, so, so it's, it's not, the, it's not the kind of wrong that made me, ah, uh, it's the kind of wrong that's to sort of reset some basic dials about how, what it's like to be alive in the world and how dangerous the world is, but how everything can be funny. Like it was, uh, it kind of wound back my sense of what's serious and what's not serious. Because if you think about getting hit by the car, that sounds like a bad thing, but you know, it turned out that it was hysterically funny. Um, and it changed sort of how I interact with things and cars and my own sense of independence and what I'm willing to do. Yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting. I've often felt that um, in, in some ways in, in the United States, at least, we've, we've lost a certain sense of humor in things throughout the course of my 60 years on the planet. And um, things, you know, there seems to be somehow less laughter than there was at one time. But um but all sorts of things can be funny. Even things that, that, you know, are in some ways dangerous or frightening also can turn funny very easily. If you're, if your outlook changes a little bit, one of the things that really struck me in, in your, the story that you just told is that it reminds me a lot of what happens when you go and spend time in a different society. Um, you, you get your, your bearings get kind of reoriented as you realize that, um, Things that you might be afraid of, you don't actually need to be afraid of, that people interact and do things in ways that they do in your own society. It may be different. It may look kind of strange and frightening at first, but you get used to it. You realize, oh, wow, it's 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 actually kind of intriguing to be engaged in this. I don't know that it's intriguing to be hit by a car, although you had a way of making it sound almost like it is, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> it was fascinating. I learned a million things. But I mean, I think you're exactly right. I always tell my students when they, when they, cause I, cause I was in the Peace Corps. Um, and I always tell my students when they're thinking about that, that you shouldn't do that unless you're really ready to have all your dials reset. Yes. Because I got back and American culture was not the same. That's exactly what happened to me after spending a long time in Japan. I came back and the U S has never been the same to me. It's, it's, it's a different place for me. Um, I don't take for granted the things that I thought I knew uh, before I spent time overseas. And I, I really do think that it, it resets your dial significantly, which I think is very healthy. Um, but it's also disconcerting. Um, it's, it's a strange thing. Coming back in some ways is more disconcerting than going because you start really seeing your society for what it is. I remember one of the, one of the first experiences I had coming back from the Peace Corps, I had to go buy shampoo 
and in my little town on the beach in the East Square, there were two shampoos. There was the big bottle and there was the little bottle. You decided which one you wanted. And then you bought that bottle. And I went to the store with someone and I'm like, I need shampoo. And they're like, what kind? I said, well, you know, a little bottle. And they're like, that is, you've answered the question totally wrong. Let me tell you what's in front of you. And I remember just bursting into tears in the middle of the store because I could not manage, I could not manage the waste and the excess and the unreasonably nuanced choices that I was faced with. And just buying a freaking bottle of shampoo. I just wanted to wash my hair. I didn't want it to smell like anything in particular. I I didn't care what color it was, the bottle. I, I just really wanted to clean my hair. And the the excess of the and, and the, the fact that people are unmoved by walking through a shampoo aisle still startles me. Like how can you just walk through there and see all those choices and not be profoundly something disgusted amazed delighted terrified ashamed something yeah 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 it's it's interesting how little things like that can trigger it too um when my my wife is is japanese and when she was first in this country i remember um we had gone out to dinner somewhere we went on long island for um some sort of seafood and it was just an enormous amount of french fries that came with it and <laughs> She just kind of broke down in tears over the French fries because it was just mm. like all of this grease and all of this enormity to the portions and everything. Um, and I thought that was, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that little things like that can trigger how different this place is that I'm in and how much I don't really grasp the way it's organized. That's yeah. that's it, it generates, I think, a kind of humility um, because you well, then, of course, you turn it around on yourself and realize, oh, wow, all the things I thought were natural aren't natural because right. they don't function that way here. Right. Yeah. And then you start to think, is this the way it ought to be? And if it's not, yeah. should we do something about that? Is Are we are we on the right track here? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, it, of course, as you think more and more about it, you begin to realize you know, of course, the the standard of American exceptionalist trope of how it's the greatest nation in the world and all of this. Well, there are a lot of other places who do quite a few things a lot better than we do things we could learn from, but we yeah. often don't want to do that. You know, I I think about it with um, healthcare, and, and you know, Japan has this wonderful healthcare system with um, universal health insurance and. Gee, they just happen to have the longest life expectancy in the world. I wonder why that is. What's, yeah, <laughs> what's that all about? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's really not rocket science. But Americans struggle with with that partly because they just don't know what it's like in other places. You know, you have to go see right. it. Right, um, right, right. You have to un you have to unembed yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. again, it's all those things that you assume that you don't know that you're assuming you think things are, are naturally that way, but all of a sudden in a different context, you realize, Oh no, it's not natural. It's just how we made it. Exactly. And, and once you get there, it's a very humbling experience because then you realize, Oh, you could make it a different way and it would be just fine. And it would make perfectly good sense. Yeah. And it's kind of joyful though, in a way, like I, I experience it as, as shock and sadness, I think in the moment, but when I stop and think about it, it's just kind of marvelous. I mean, what an incredibly weird, bizarre, joyful thing it is to be a consciousness in a body, in a world with other consciousnesses in bodies. I mean, that, that sort of basic realization um, can be 
uh, when I'm in the right mood, <laughs> can be just uh, shocking to me and hysterically funny and sort of desperately unknowable. Uh, and it's that sense of when I was thinking about when you were asking about what, what is what is intellectual humility and um, I mean, I, I just think it's if at, at its root, it's such a joyful thing in, you know, it sort of wavers for me back and forth between hopelessness and joy, which I think is probably healthy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I think so. Well, but it, 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 I, I think it's joyful because when, when you are humbled by these things, you then begin to realize that you have the ability to construct things in a way that, that, you know, humans can construct things in a way that they would like if they chose to do that, rather than just being kind of um, controlled by the context in which they're embedded, they can actually take the bull by the horns and decide the way they want to make the world. And yet we don't really want to do that, at least for the most part, humans don't seem to be too engaged with doing that. Here's something that I've always thought is really weird, and and it wouldn't necessarily have to be this way, that it is just profoundly, viscerally joyful to learn a new thing. Like that feeling of, I I remember vividly the first time this came consciously to my mind, I was in ninth grade in algebra class, and I was sitting there thinking, I have no idea what the heck you're talking about. And he's at the board, and he's doing, and he's, he's not he's not communicating well. He's saying things like, well, you know, this number over here becomes this number over here. And I'm thinking that is not helpful to me. I'm not looking at your board. Um, uh, and, and that feeling of, I remember sitting there thinking, I just feel, I feel so confused and lost. And all of a sudden, bam, like there was no effort. It felt effortless. There was no effort. All of a sudden I understood it. And like, and that, that jolt of moving from, I don't get this to, Oh, it's like that does not have to be a good feeling. Like, like if you were designing a race, if you were designing consciousness, you wouldn't have to build that in as as an invariably a good thing. But I think I mean, I don't know if I've ever asked anybody this question, but I I believe that for everyone, that sudden that sudden crash in of uh, of understanding a new thing. Mm. Everybody likes that, don't they? Do they? I, I'm, 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 I'm inclined to agree with you, but then, uh, you know, I think about things like, um, well, for example, uh, you know, several years ago, the Republican Party in my state of Texas put out their platform in which they said that they don't want um, critical thinking taught in the public schools because they didn't want anything in the schools that challenge people's preconceived beliefs. I don't know. Do they, do they have that experience? If, if you don't want, if you don't want to be humbled, if you want to assume that you've got the whole truth, then do you have that experience when you learn something new? Oh, I think, I think what happened there is they just, they contaminated the basic learning is good with, political stuff right like i mean if i when i find out i was like i learned a new thing and it meant i was wrong and i'm now in trouble like that's probably not that's not pleasant for me right when i find out i've done something that's bad or i made some terrible mistake that's gonna hurt me or make me feel ashamed or put someone else in make a problem for somebody else it's like that feeling that when you send that email that you shouldn't have sent and you suddenly realize that you shouldn't have sent it i mean 
that is learning, but it's also really immediately coupled with I. Uh... <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think, and, and actually, this kind of brings us to a, another, you know, question that I have because when it comes to scholarship, I think this is a little bit different. Although I think people often react the same way, um, and, and I'm curious about how how you would define the idea of intellectual humility. And, and, and for me, at least one of the things about this is the mindset that, oh, you know, um, I wrote a paper and, and Sherry read it and wrote a rebuttal that shows that I was stupid and I got it all wrong. And there's a side of me that says, well, I don't like that. But there's another side of me that says, oh, that's really interesting. She pointed out something I didn't think of. And, you know, so is, is it, can it be different for all of us or, you know, can it be different in the, in the academic world where we can maybe, um, maybe if not rejoice, rejoice might not be the right word, but word, but, uh, at least, um, in some ways revel in the fact that we get shown to be wrong on occasion with the things that we thought we knew. I don't know. Can we uncouple that? I mean, I think the question is, can you uncouple it from the professional consequences right so if you if um if you see a big flaw in a paper that i really want to publish part of my thing is i really need to publish this paper because whatever i i need to it's my job and if i don't do this then i get in trouble or like eventually they take away my graduate faculty status or or i i I don't get to write this book that i want to write because who's going to read it if i'm wrong all the time but I don't know, like if we could arrive at a place, I think that's what sometimes when people have these ideas about uh, unconferences or just or just people getting together, I think, oh, you know what it is? It's that difference between at a conference talking about things with friends, like kicking around an idea and trying to sort it out uh, as opposed to the formal academic arena where you're supposed to write a thing and then get credit. I think, it's, is it the credit thing? Is that what contaminates that fun of figuring things out? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're onto something with that. It's that need to get credit, which of course itself is generated by the need of administrators to assess and measure what we do, mostly from a quantitative perspective <laughs> yeah. rather than a qualitative perspective. Because if it was from a qualitative perspective, being wrong would be fine if that being wrong pushed forward the discussion and got us thinking right. in new ways. Yeah. It's like when you're a little kid and you're building something with your blocks, you figure mm-hmm. out how to build it so it doesn't fall down. And when it falls down, that's not a big deal because you're just like, oh, well, I'll build it this way now. And and when you're when you're when you're six, that's all good fun, right? But when I when I carry that endeavor, that endeavor to that that drive I have to make a thing um, into academia, it becomes, oh, you were wrong. Not your tower fell down. Oh, don't do it that way. But you were wrong. And yeah. boy, that has consequences. So in other words, are, are, are we saying that academia actually gets in the way of having <laughs> intellectual humility and, and epistemic yeah. humility? Uh, not surprised anybody? <laughs> uh, probably not. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> That may be a well-duh kind of thing, but um, 
but, but I think it, there is I mean, something to it. It wouldn't have to be like like I think right. I remember being in grad school, and as a grad student, I mean there was there was a lot of that built in too. You were supposed to impress people. I mean maybe 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 mm-hmm. we need to go back even before grad school, right? But there was a time when we could play with ideas, wasn't yes. there? I think so. I, I think, although I I also think that, and I wonder if this is to some extent a problem with the way the academy is changing, but. I think it's getting harder to play with ideas. I think you see, you know, graduate students now are interested in publishing. That's what they're, they want to do because of course they want to get a job and, you know, it's understandable why that's that way. But, um, but that means it becomes harder and harder to truly play with ideas and, you know, see where they take you. And, and I, I mean, I imagine, um, you know, because you know, you and I have both done work related to you know search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and uh, I mean, to me, it's it's one of the most intriguing things to do because it allows us to imagine what it is to be an intelligent thinking being and how those you know how culture and language and all these things come together with this. But but I, I also know that many times in the past I've you know told colleagues I'm working this and I, I get the little giggle and sneer. Oh yeah. Uh, which basically is saying, oh, so you're not doing anything serious, are you? Well, I'm exploring ideas. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. But it somehow often doesn't, it isn't seen. It's changing. I think astrobiology has changed this. Have you had that experience as well? Yeah, I, I, I used to not tell people that on airplanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. Hi, yeah. I'm interested in alien. Yeah, let me move a little way. Let's see, yeah. is there a middle seat here? Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. honey. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but I think that, I mean, I, all whatever people think of it aside, if we don't lay some intellectual groundwork uh, before first contact, we'll be in trouble, Right. Because we really have to, we really have to have thought some of these things out, at least amongst ourselves, right? Uh, because otherwise, we'll just be, uh, we'll be relying on on our all. Wait, let me make that sentence over. We'll be relying on just our um, unconscious assumptions. Yeah, I and I think that's actually to me that's one of the values in in SETI research is that even if contact never happens it's a way to think about the way we make assumptions about the world and the way that we put the world together. And it, it can be very powerful in, in a way to explore that. That, I mean, and that's, that's always one of the things that I come back to whenever people talk about that, about that being a waste of time or whatever they mm-hmm. want to say. Um, because so, so when I think about uh, like walking, being, being a disabled person on earth today is to have lots of people thinking you're wrong most of the time, right? So if I'm walking somewhere, people will people will assume that because I'm walking on the street, they look at me, they think, well, that person must need, must need help. Or if I stop and I pause at a street corner and I think, oh, I sort of get this traffic pattern, but maybe I'll just stand here one more turn of the light. Um, and so I can work it out and figure out what I'm doing. And then I'll figure out and I'll cross the street. Um, there are a, a, a non-insignificant, Wait, a significant <laughs> set of people that that believe that anytime I'm crossing a street, I'm in danger. And having been hit by a car, like I've got a perspective on that now, and I feel like as a freaking adult, um, I know what I'm doing. But but there's but I mean, one of the things that I thought about a lot when when getting ready to do this podcast um, is how many times a 
day, really, if I'm out in a place where people don't know me, I deal with other people being wrong about what I'm doing, why I'm there, if it's okay for me to be there. Um, uh, if I walk across, if I like, if I, you want an example, right? I want an example. Yeah. So like if I'm walking across campus, it's a big Mm -hmm. enough campus. We've got 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. So odds of me encountering the same people every day are low. I mean, it's some of them, right. But, but Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, assuming that as uh, a person who's much older than, than most of the students, um, walking purposefully across campus with a backpack, um, uh, probably not dressed in raggedy jeans, you know, just, just, I always, I always during classes, I don't always try to dress a notch above, uh, you know, what some of my students might wear just out of respect. Um, they don't say, they don't assume that I'm faculty. They will stop me and they will say, where are you trying to go, honey? They'll often call me honey. Um, no one would ever address any faculty member, male or female as honey. I don't think, um, or they'll say, is there a special place you're trying to go? And they'll use this tone of, is there a special place you're trying to go? Um, uh, first off, trying to go? Is that really what we need, what I really need to hear? How about, you know, I am going somewhere. I'm not trying to go anywhere. I'm going. Um, you know, or, uh, you know, if I'm in a cab going to the, going to the campus, um, instead of saying, you know, what department do you work in? They'll say, is there a special program on campus for you? In that tone of voice. So, or if I'm, um, or if I'm walking with my coffee uh, and I'm going to sit down at a table, uh, they assume I have no idea where I'm going. They assume that I'm going to drop that cup of coffee. Um, having been in a lot of coffee shops, I know that actually I drop less coffee than most people because I'm extra careful uh, because I don't want to, I don't want to, I know that's what they're thinking and I'm, proud enough and stubborn enough to think, well, heck with that. I'm not going to be the one to drop the coffee. So like, yep, blind people drop coffee. Aha, I was right about that. Um, and so, so there is this background of other people being wrong um, that, um, that I have to think about right? Do I want to, how much energy do I want to put into correcting that? How much do I, how much do I want that to influence me? Um, like it, uh, I think the classic example, again, is airports, right? You know, that little hamster tube tunnel that you go down to get to the airplane, right? That little jetway thing. So the last time I was in the airport, there were two dudes, three dudes behind me. And they kept saying a little to your left, a little to your right. Okay, a little more to your left. And I, at one point, I finally turned around. And I'm walking backwards down the tube in front of them. And I said, what exactly do you think I'm going to do wrong here? It is like, I cannot escape this tunnel. This is a hamster tube. Do you think, what, what could happen? Please quit it. And I turned back around. And they, I heard them kind of go, ha, ha, ha. And then 10 steps later, okay, a little to your left, a little to your right. So my, my, my opinion about my own abilities is not valid data to them. And so then I have to decide, so what does that, what does that mean in my head? Uh, do I, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to be that person that ignores how I feel or ignores reality. Um, and so one of the results that I keep thinking about a lot from going on this, this 
vomit comet flight, right? So I've done something that 99.99999% of humans never get to do. It was amazing. And although I went into it thinking of myself as a confident, competent uh, traveler, I came out thinking, oh no, that was not right now. I get now I can do, I can do this thing that I didn't imagine doing ever before. And so, and one of the results was that gap broadened between my perception of myself and what I can do and the guys in the jetways perception of what I can do. And I find that gap really interesting, painful, uh, big, it's a huge gap and it's bigger than it used to be. So the word that comes to my mind describing those two guys in the jetway, and, and I'm curious if you would use this word, the word to me is arrogance. They're arrogant about the idea that their way of doing things is the only way that can work. And anybody else, somebody who can't see, whatever, their way of doing things, they, they can't possibly do things in a way that works. Does that, does that would arrogance be the right word? It rings true for me, but I'm confident that's not what they think is happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They think they're being helpful. Um, but, I've, you know, I've, the airport thing, I mean, uh, of course, you and I are connected on Facebook, and, and I will follow your travels on Facebook. And one of the things that just has never failed to get me is you'll talk about your, you know, moving just fine through the airport, getting where you need to go, and a hand will get laid on you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think to myself, well, I would turn around and minimally shake the person off, if not elbow them, if they did that, you know, and it's like, it would really bother me. And, uh, you know, obviously it's, you know, it's this kind of assumption that, okay, my way of moving through an airport is the only way that can work. Um, And if anybody moves through an airport differently, or if they have, a different set of cues that they use to move through the airport. Oh, that can't work. Um, right. Yeah. So what do you do in a context where so many people are so wrong? I mean, that's, that's the ongoing question, right? Do I just say it doesn't bother me? Well, you know what? It does bother me because, because I think that I deserve to move through the airport like anybody else. Um, so, you know, you, and I don't want to be, I also don't want to, there's like a lot of stances that you could take in response to they're just trying to help. So any helping is good. Well, that's not how it feels like. Um, or they're all just completely stupid and I hate them. <laughs> also not a healthy way to live. Right. So other people's wrongness, like what it's, it's an on, I think it's just one of my ongoing conversations with myself. What do I do with that? It's a fascinating question because, you know, I think we're, I think all of us are confronted with that in some way, in different ways. We encounter the fact that the people incorrectly interpret who we are. That that's that's mm-hmm. a normal thing that all of us deal with. But what you know, what you're doing, what you're saying is that not only do they incorrectly interpret who you are, they then act on it, and then you're forced to have to deal with that action on it, whether you're going through an airport or, or crossing the street or whatever. Um, they might not act on that with me. You know, if I'm walking through the airport, people are going to leave me alone because they're just assume, well, he can see, therefore he can get where he can go. Um, but there is no reason to act on it, you know, un- unless someone actually is in need of help. That's an interesting problem. And 
yeah. it, lead, it leads you to this sort of question of, well, what's really motivating the acting on it? Well, part of it is the desire to help, but there's something else in there too. There's a kind of an arrogance yeah. in there that, that's also floating around in that, the assumption that other people can't do. And the tragedy is really, if there is a tragedy here, because because I think I think that's it's, this is this is an interesting problem for me to work out um, because because I am who I am. I think it's an interesting puzzle to work out. And I, you know, I can I can figure out where to land between rage and joy and ignoring and whatever. But the tragedy is that the people uh, the, the the disability is not a closed set. Anyone can become disabled at basically any time. So the people who are who are demonstrating what they believe about disability are sort of making it so hard for themselves were they to become disabled. Right? So they're they they don't think they don't think a blind person can walk through an airport. What happens if they can't see all of a sudden? Are they then going to what give up the idea that they can walk through airports? Because I think once you walk through an airport, being left alone, you sort of like that. But like they, that, they will they will push themselves to give up things that they don't have to give up. Yeah, and then this this actually brings me around to um, this wonderful video you did on the um, job interview. Oh, yeah. Which uh, <laughs> it really struck me as, as as an anthropologist, it really struck me interesting. But you know, also just thinking about this, and, and one of the things, of course, that, that you know, that for our, our listeners, that it's a it's sort of a it's a, a a video that shows the things that go wrong when talking, you know, to blind people and the assumptions that are made. And of course, one of the things that the two people doing the interview is they um, they talk about how they did what what was the test that they did again. Um, where they blindfold themselves. Yeah. And they try to do things. It was, yeah. And and it's kind of ridiculous because I can blindfold myself and try to do things, but that's different from having constructed a way to, to function in the world based upon what I happen to have for sensory apparatus. And, and they're, they're not the same thing. I can't, this is a, it's an interesting problem of, of sort of the limits of empathy um, I can listen to you tell me what it's like to move around when you don't see things, but I actually can't experience that even if I blindfold myself because my world has been built upon the ability to see things. So it's different. And, right. and, and I thought it was a really powerful aspect of the video. Well, and you just don't have the skill set, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are things that I have trouble doing without looking, right? But but I but I've got the skill set to do the things that that you know, mostly ordinary things. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and and you know, and the thing is, there are different skill sets. That's right. that's that's the point. Right. They're, they're just different skill sets. Um, one isn't a better skill set than the other. They're just different skill sets that help us to navigate whatever we're navigating at a particular point in time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. So I'm curious, I want to just, you know, kind of, I guess, related to this is that uh, I know that you're a musician and I'm, I'm curious how the skill set involved with being a musician comes into play with all of this. How, how is doing music really? Because I'm a musician too. And, and you know, it, it's a very different way of communicating and interacting uh, from, you know, speech or walking around or whatever we're doing. So I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, actually, the music is one of the things I wrote down when I was taking notes in preparation mm-hmm. for this about the value of being 
of being wrong. Uh, um, I mean, it's like le learning a language. There's lots of habits to build to start off with, right? If I'm trying to learn a new piece, just like if I'm trying to learn a new language, I've got to try it. Uh, and in, in music in particular, I've got to try it a lot of times, and a lot of them are going to be wrong at first. Um, we were just noticing at band practice the other night what a better band we are now than we were even last year. You know, just our 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 the level at which we're in sync with one another has changed. Um, and I think that's that that we necessarily did a lot of wrong things as we were learning these things, right? Um, I don't know. It's it's that to me that seems it seems a lot just like habit construction. Like how do I how do I teach my hands to do what my brain wants my hands to do? And successive approximations of that. And I. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you can't get better at something without doing it. I don't know if being wrong is part of that or not knowing, or I, 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 I'm sort of struggling to figure out the differences. I have been thinking about this for a while, but there's, there's, okay. Okay. Wait, here's one of the ways that, that I know that being wrong is, is useful. So if I'm, if I'm working, so I'm a, 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 a I play instruments with frets, right? So if I have a passage that I want to learn, um, I have to try a bunch of different ways of fingering the the before I before I arrive at the one that works best. Um, I had a really awesome uh, guitar teacher uh, for a couple of years for for like a, like a just a couple of lessons actually just like a, a semester, who told me that that's the thing you spend the most time on is you work out what is the proper way, what is the most natural, what is going to be the most fluent way to to uh, to finger this this particular sequence of notes, and you try different fingers, you try different kind of when do you jump up the neck with what finger until you figure out the one that's going to work. Right. Yeah. That's um, I think, you know, musicians do that. The other thing that's kind of interesting as you work those things out, sometimes your mistakes, you discover that, Oh, that thing that was kind of a mistake that actually works better here. And oh, yeah. you, you learn something along the way you develop kind of a new way to, to approach, um, you know, the thing I play the piano and, and the drums, but, you know, fingering, of course, is, is a very important in the piano and, and, and how you move across the drums, you know, which you start with your right hand or your left hand, that kind of thing is very important to where you end up. And so, um, so yeah, it's a, you know, for me, music, part of what music is, is as a jazz musician is that the process of improvisation, it involves sometimes playing the wrong notes and then figuring out what you can do with playing the wrong notes to, to make them turn into something that makes sense. And yeah. Yeah. And if you, and I think it's Adam Neely that said that um, redundancy legitimizes, right? If you make a mistake, please make the same mistake again. And then it sounds like you meant it. And then you start thinking, well, I've just made that mistake. Some of my best recordings uh, in the studio came from getting just a little too excited, playing a wrong note and then thinking, Okay, well, where, where do I go from here? And then it turns out that the lead just became a whole different thing. Oh, it's repetition yeah. legitimizes. That's what Adam Neely says. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and then just like having made a mistake, you think, well, I'm not going to stop. 
<laughs> I, I, we're, we're, we're paying for studio time here. That's I'm not going to stop. Yeah. I'm going to just keep going. Or there's people watching. Uh, right. You know, it's not like we're going to go, oopsie, start the song over, everybody. You, know, you yeah, just got to keep flying. You can't do that. Yeah. If you're on stage, you just got to keep playing and, and work your way through it and figure it out and figure out <laughs> what to do with a mistake. You know? yeah. And you act like it was all cool, right? That's no. it. Yeah. 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 You just don't want to get the surprise look on your face. That's the key. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I think so many times when we, and, and I think, I think as you, as you get to be a better and better band working together, you learn to cover for each other. So afterward we can sit there and go, well, that was crap. We all played really badly, (laughs) but but like the, the end result is that nobody noticed. Right. Right. I mean, maybe there are probably musicians out there who are like, yep, you sure didn't. yeah." Yeah. But I mean, for most people, as long as you keep going and you, you, you pull it out, you take the mistake and it becomes, sometimes it becomes exactly the thing you do next time, because sometimes it's supposed oh, I'm going to do that all the time. That would be great. Oh. Yeah, there, there have been many instances where, you know, I've been playing the, the drum solo in a tune and, and I, I somehow get a little off. And then afterwards, I thank the bass player, man, you bailed me out there. Thank you. But then when I went back and listened to it, even though uh, somehow a beat got lost in there, it actually sounded pretty good. And then I want to figure out, all right, how can I make this happen, you know, um, intentionally rather than by mistake? <laughs> so, well, Sherry, let me, so we're, I think we're, we've been chatting for an hour. This has gone by very quickly and Thanks. wonderfully. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add about this topic that we haven't gotten to? There's two things still in my notes. Um, One of the things is that what has saved me, I think, uh, I was going to, I was about to say from being wrong, but I mean, maybe after being wrong, I don't know, is having a community of people to sort of compare that with uh, and people who are people who are open to uh, hearing what you did and sorting it out with you. Um. So if you've got colleagues or friends who can who can talk you through what happened um, or or who can help you test assumptions and unpack assumptions. I think one of the giant radioactive, gaping, horrible flaws in academia is that um, is that we say we're a community and we we say that. But but do we do we really have each other's backs when it comes to. Uh, like I can personally deal with it. Was I wrong or not? But, uh, but do I have people that I can go, Hey, here's an idea. Mm, what is that? Is that, is that, does this make any sense? Or uh, like in my case, if I'm, if I'm out and, uh, and people are on me because I, you know, I walk through an airport, do I have people that I can later go, ah, this happened and have them and have them sort of, push back sometimes and say, well, you know, how do you really, how do you really want to react to that? Or, or yeah, you're exactly right. Because you can't like doing this all by yourself in a vacuum uh, just is a really, is a really good way to, (laughs) it's a really good way to crash and burn both sort of emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, all the ways. I mean, I could sit and meditate all I want, but in the end it's, I need other people to, talk to me about mm-hmm. things yeah we, we have to have people who both will will challenge us when we think we're right and also support us when we think we're right they're, they're, both of those things have to happen and um you know that i think 
that for one thing, that's how we learn things is by having those things go on. But it's also, if we have that, then I think it becomes much easier to be wrong. If we feel like people will still be supportive, even if, well, that idea just didn't make any sense. Um, Rather than it being a sort of a, oh, gotcha, which often happens in the academic world. Uh, yeah. I think I think we're in a much better environment if it, if it's you know sort of like well that was interesting but um, yeah I don't think it works and this is why is that I mean that's supposed to go on just within departments in academia I think although I'm it's supposed to I don't really there aren't people in my immediate building in, in the English department who do what I do um, lots of lovely people but 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 I mean that that intellectual community. Uh, I mean, I think that, I mean, it's, we talk, we're talking about academia here, but obviously it's emotional, your actual real life as well, right? Is there a place you can go to be wrong? And why does it have to be a special place? That's a, that's an absolutely wonderful way to think about it. Is that, that a really interesting idea? Is there a place you can go to be wrong? Yeah. And, and in fact, I think, well, I, I think if, if more broadly, our society were open to being wrong. If it were a place where you could be wrong, we'd have a lot fewer problems than what we have right now because people would be working together to try to solve them. I mean, you hear that when people are talking about, uh, when people are questioning, you know, climate science or when we're questioning things about, the, about, about vaccines and that, you know, just because if it's a new idea or if it contradicts something that went on before, that idea that someone might've been wrong is, it feels like it feels toxic to people instead of, well, that's what science does is we, we try to figure things out. And yeah, we, we, we have had to be wrong a lot to get to the comfortable buildings that we live in um, and the science that we have and the machines that we all love so much. Uh, But, but this, but this, the, there's a basic scientific illiteracy that's, that feels rampant to me. People don't understand what science does and how well, wrong I, is built into it. I, I so so very much agree with you. I thought about it repeatedly when, you know, Dr. Fauci would come up and, and make some sort of a, you know, comment along the lines of, okay, we're making some change in the way that we think you should be doing masks or whatever it is. And then all people sort of get all up on arms and like, oh, we'll see, they were wrong. Well, no, we learned something and we learned this works better than what we thought we knew. And, and yet what I think a broad spectrum of the American public, at least, seems to believe that science answers things and gives truth. And if it doesn't do that, then it's wrong. And rather than understanding science as a process of trying to understand the world that, you know, just continues to grow, it doesn't have an end point. And I agree, it's, it's a right. widespread misunderstanding of and there's that, that just that lack of willingness to give each other grace, to give each other a moment to figure things out. I mean, I, I think that's that's at all levels, right? From from what does Fauci say down to what is that person in that restaurant doing, or what did she mean by that remark that I thought was crabby, but maybe wasn't. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that linguists do all the time as we look at intentions and utterances and how those things match up and where, how you build a misunderstanding. Right. It's pretty easy to build one. It is easy. And and the process of talking to people is sort of a process of constant, constantly experimenting with what to say. And and Mm -hmm. sometimes it goes right. Sometimes it goes wrong. Yeah. uh, Yeah. 
So what else? Anything else that you would like to add? I think that's about it. I, I, I think I was going to start the conversation by asking you about a taxonomy of wrongnesses. Are there, are there different kinds of being wrong? But I think that's what your whole podcast is doing. I mean, I hope so. I, I think that's part of what we're, we're trying to do is to work through this and, and also to just get people thinking about the fact that, hey, being wrong is okay, that we learn from that. And that we should, in a sense, embrace the wrongness um, to recognize that, it, that there's, you know, humility comes out of that and it helps us deal with each other better and deal with the world better. And, uh, so, and I, I will say this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, which I knew it would be Sherry. I, I, as soon as I asked, this is going to be a great conversation, but um, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I, I really want to thank you for joining us and, and, and being part of the podcast. Yeah. Okay. And I, wait, I'm sorry. I did think of one more yeah. thing I wanted to oh, say. Good, good. So one of the, one of the things that, that I had written down here, uh, this is the last thing in my notes that I hadn't crossed mm-hmm. off. Um, it was my, my PhD research was in speech errors. And, and by that, I mean, not things that you shouldn't have said because you were unwise. Um, but, but real things that came out of your mouth and you think, whoa, I didn't know I was going to say that things like, oh, it's really, it's really hot in the winter. I mean, cold in the winter or it's really wold in the winter. Oh, I mean, cold in the winter. Um, and the reason that, besides the fact that the data were really fun, I did it in five languages. Um, Japanese was one of them. It was really super fun. Uh, and the data are really fun to, to walk around and listen to what people really say and then write down their errors, which makes them deeply uncomfortable. But I mean, the, the purpose of that study was to use those errors to construct a model of the human speech production system. So these crazy things that people, the, the errors that the speech production system lets slip through are exactly the data that we need to figure out how, um, how you take a proposition out of your head and put words to it and then say it because we can't look inside people's heads effectively to, it's not like you can slow it, like a tennis swing. You can't slow the, you can slow the tennis swing down and watch I know nothing about tennis. Um, you, you can slow it down and watch exactly how they do it, but you can't you can't examine speech production like that. It's very black boxy. Um, so one of the things that we did, it was very popular in the 70s and had a little resurgence. And then, you know, I did it in the 90s. Um, is it the, the, the errors that we made were the very essence of uh, the data that we needed to figure out how brains do language. And that always seemed glorious to me, is that these things that we throw away and think are garbage become kind of the cornerstone that we build our theory of human speech production on. And that has always just made me really happy. And it makes me think a lot about the value of studying the wrong things that we do in order to construct I don't know, to construct all kinds of things, right? Whatever we were wrong about, that's data. Um, it's not just it's not just for throwing away. It's something really valuable that happened that if we don't treat it as garbage, if we treat it as data, can really teach us things. That is that's absolutely fascinating. I as I, I think about how many different ways one could apply that. I, I started thinking about my son when he was in high school and he was a really serious baseball player and all the time he spent in the cage with people observing his swing. And of course the focus is always on how, to, how you got the swing right. 
But of course, there's another side to that. There's a study of how you got it wrong. You know, what happened when you missed the ball? What happened when you fouled it off and all that kind of thing? That's very important data. And of course, they, they, they're taking that into account. But there's a there's a, a kind of conscious focus on getting it right. Yes. But there's an equal importance to understanding how you get it wrong. Um, is it, or maybe more importance in many ways, because a lot of times, well, like in hitting a baseball, most of the time you get it wrong. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I I gotta go and I'll, I'll have to go and read your doctoral dissertation. That, that's oh, don't just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't know that thinks it should be read. No, I did write an article. It's in it's in one of the journals, one of the linguistics mm. journals. Right, where, where I sucked all the good stuff out and published it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to take a look at that. That sounds like it'll be really interesting. It was um, fun. Yeah. Well. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. And again, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to take the time to be on How to Be Wrong. And um, I will you know, look forward to our future conversations at conferences and things like that. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for the time. It was a fascinating conversation. Great. All right.